Tick, 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 tick. I woke up in my bed. That infernal noise was going on again, waking me up. And I sat there listening with my senses on high alert. But it stopped. Nothing. But just as I was about to lie back down again, I heard the noise for the second time. Tick, 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 tick. And it was only just audible, which made the sound even more irritating, as it was forcing me to actively listen for it when all I wanted to do was ignore it. But I knew I couldn't ignore it. I knew that I couldn't sleep through it. And so I got up, I got dressed, and I headed out of my room. And I'd learnt to sway back and forth as I walked with the rhythm of the ship that we'd been living on for a couple of years. And of course, when you're waking up, your balance isn't too great. So I lived on deck eight of this ship, our home, Envy Logos Hope, and I knew that the faint uh, ticking sound was coming from deck nine at the very top of the ship. And so I headed aft. Here's a picture of the ship. You can see where our cabin is. You can see where the sound was coming from, and you can see where I had to go in order to get up onto deck eight. So I headed aft towards the nearest set of stairs that would take me up to the top of the ship. And as it happened, my family lived right at the front of the ship, overlooking the bow, but the stairs were nearly at the back of the ship, so I started my early morning trek. And as I walked through the doors to the, to, to the outsides of the ship, um, where, where the stairs were, I felt this blast of South China Sea wind. And I found myself smiling in spite of myself, because it was warm and it was beautiful. It was always a pleasure to be outside at night when the ship was sailing. No one was around except for me and the crew who were working on the bridge. But I wiped that smile off my face because I had a job to do. And so I climbed the fairly steep stairs up to the top of the ship, where I headed forward to where I suspected the noise was coming from, right above our cabin. And I knew what I would find when I got there. Various chairs across the deck left from people who had earlier been enjoying the sunset or maybe the first stars of the evening and had left the chairs exactly where they had been sitting and they went on to whatever they were doing next. And because of the roll of the ship and maybe one leg was slightly shorter than the three other legs on one chair, there was one chair that would rock ever so gently back and forth creating a ticking sound that I could hear from my cabin on deck eight. Outside the ship on deck nine, I couldn't hear it at all because the sea wind was blowing and, the, and there was the sound of the vents and the sound of general ship noises, engines and such. But I knew that as soon as I went inside, I'd hear it again. So I picked up all of the loose chairs and I stacked them up in a pile and I found some rope and I lashed the chairs to a railing. I tested the chairs to make sure it was fast and that it wouldn't move at all. And then I made my plans to go back to the cabin. The funny thing was that my cabin was straight underneath me. Yeah, I couldn't just jump from deck nine down to deck eight. I couldn't even climb down a ladder. The only way for me to get back was for me to retrace my steps all the way to the back of the ship that took me down onto deck eight and then to come back forward Uh, heading back towards my cabin. In other words, I had to lose ground in order to gain ground. I had to actually back up in order to go forward the way home was heading back. 
So last week we left the children of Israel on the new side of the Jordan River, this river that had been miraculously held back um, maybe 27 kilometers upstream, allowing hundreds of thousands of Israelites to cross the riverbed of the Jordan. And these, these were people who had grown up with the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, but now through trusting in God, they were actually getting their own story, one that they could tell to their children. And we learned that just as, as, as the children of Israel did, that in order to get our own story, we must be prepared to, we must prepare ourselves, um, which, which means consecration, which means setting our, ourselves apart. Secondly, we have to participate by following God where he leads. And lastly, we must commit to actually promoting God by inviting others to maybe be curious about what God has done in our lives and how, how the children of, as, of Israel made others curious was to create a pile of stones. Um, but we can do it in all sorts of ways, like I talked about last week. But the goal is to get others to ask, what does this symbol mean? What does this thing mean? After which we can then share with them our story. So in summary, As we trust in God, he gives us our story, and we do this by preparing for what God's going to do, by participating in what God is doing, and by promoting God, by sharing what he's already done. This gives us our story. Let's turn to Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. Okay. Uh, now when all the Amorites, uh, yeah, and so I would encourage you to read along. So if you don't have a Bible open, I'd encourage you to get one open, read along. We, we will be flicking around. And also I'd encourage you to make notes in this handy little sermon notes um, space there on the bulletin, which is specially for you. This will help you um, remember and that it won't be like water off a duck's back. Okay? All right. So... Joshua 5 verse 1, now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Our theme today is we have to back up in order to move on, in order to go on. And Joshua chapter 5 is a powerful example of this um, because what you have is, is, is 2 million Israelites who've just crossed the Jordan River full of military might with the Ark of the Covenant, remember, 900 meters in front of them. They are now in enemy territory. And you would think that they'd want to keep this momentum on. After all, we learn in chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5 that all of the kings of the Amorites and the kings of the Canaanites were melting in fear, and it says that they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. So if there are any military strategists among us, they might tell us that the wise thing to do would be you know, to capitalize on this and to push on, but instead God tells them to stop. And specifically, he tells them to observe two rituals, circumcision and the Passover. Because uh, because as I've shared before in this series, that this conquest is not going to be about the military prowess of the Israelites. No, it's going to be about their, their listening to God's words and them being 
people who obey. And so at this moment in, 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 the, in the move into Canaan, God knows that there's some unfinished work in the lives of the Israelites, something that has to be put right before any ground is able to be gained. Before they move forward, they have to back up. Let's move on to verse 2, which says, At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised that first generation, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since, um, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones that Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Um, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Yeah, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, so the place has been called Gilgal until this time. So what we find out here is that, first of all, Joshua makes knives out of flint, and he circumcises all of the men at this place called Gibeath Haraloth, which is a pretty phenomenal name. Because what it means is the hill of foreskins. So you can imagine just how many men had to be circumcised in order for this place to get its name as the hill of foreskins. And round here we have names with subdiv- we have we have subdivisions with names like Stonebridge and Meadowbrook and Half Moon Bay and Settlers Grant, and they all conjure up names of nature, of peace, of well-being. And they're often called this name either to Um, to show off some natural feature nearby or to mention something historical that's happened there. Well, imagine that you were in the market for a house in the ancient Near East and you'd agreed to meet the realtor at Foreskin Hills Subdivision. So you move in, as many other people do at that time, because it's new and it's a nice area. And as the subdivision grows, a year or two later, you can actually purchase your venti mochaccino at the... Hill of Foreskins Starbucks branch, and maybe even send your kids to the warmly named Foreskin Hill Primary School. So, unfortunately, aside, why did this mass circumcision take place? Well, because it says very clearly in verse 7 that the entire generation of Israelites who were born in the desert had not been circumcised, which means that for 40 years wandering in the desert... The Israelites had let this practice slip. And we aren't told exactly why they neglected this, but uncircumcision at that time was a symbol of being out of relationship with God. You see, circumcision was a covenant practice 
that God instituted with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17, where God not only promises Abraham's descendants the land that the Israelites are now in, but he also introduces Abraham to this concept of circumcision, this practice that the Israelites had neglected for 40 years. You see, wrapped up in this ritual of circumcision was the, was the idea that God had promised himself to Abraham and those who would, who would come after him, known now as the Israelites. And at that moment, in, as, as part of the covenant, Abraham and his descendants also promised themselves to him. They said, Lord, we will be yours. It was a bit like um, a promise or some sort of an some sort, some sort of, of an agreement. Uh, we might think of it now like marriage, but instead of the wedding ring to symbolize their faithfulness, the men were all circumcised, but it meant the same thing. Because circumcision served to remind the people of Israel that God was a faithful God. It showed them that they were his. Listen to the language used in Genesis chapter 17. Um, as God talks to Abram about circumcision. He says this, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And God then goes on to talk about the promised land in verse 8. He says, the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner. Remember, he's speaking to, 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 to Abraham. I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants, and I will be their God. And so wrapped up in the covenant that God establishes with Abraham, this promise, this kind of marriage, uh, is a place, is a location. And that place is Canaan, where they are now. Moving on to verse 9. Um, and, and God says, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant that you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of covenant between me and you. And then we move on to verse 13, where he says, My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any circumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So circumcision was a symbol that in essence said, let what has happened to my foreskin happen to me as a person if I break this promise that I have with the Lord. And so the warning is is really serious, and the repercussions are real, that anyone who is not circumcised, because of the meaning of this symbol, that anyone who's not circumcised is to be cut off from the people of God. And the reason is this, is that this physical sign of circumcision represented a much more profound reality of being pledged us with God and him with us. And so there is a pun here which is intended of being actually cut off. But let me ask you a question. If an individual is, if, is uncircumcised and they're cut off from the nation, as, it's, as, as we've just read, but what happens when it's not just the individual who is uncircumcised, but it's the entire nation that is uncircumcised? Who are they actually cut off from? It, 
they can't be cut off from themselves because the whole nation is uncircumcised. And so I think that, the, that who they are cut off from is God himself. They were wandering around in the desert with a broken relationship. He was still with them, but that relationship was actually broken. And it makes you wonder what was the spiritual state of the children of Israel as they wandered around in the desert for 40 years out of this relationship with their God, walking around as millions of people who have broken this, 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 this wonderful, wonderful agreement with God himself. So, you know, you have to think of it like this. For 400 years, as they were in Egypt as slaves, they had reminded themselves of this relationship with God through the rite of circumcision. They remembered who God was and who they were in relation to him. No matter how hard things got, and they got really hard, as, as we know, they kept hanging on to this truth that God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. They observed the ritual of circumcision for 400 years, yet all it took was one generation out in the desert for this powerful symbol of their relationship with God himself to become nothing more than a memory. They carelessly cast aside their wedding ring, and this wasn't something that they'd accidentally maybe overlooked. And I don't want to be crass, but every time they went to the bathroom, or every time they were intimate with their wives, they were reminded that they were covenant breakers. And yet they kept on going year in, year out, out of relationship with their God. Until this moment, this moment of restoration, this moment of healing, this rift between God and his children. You see, for 40 years, God in his grace had led his children through the wilderness. He had looked after them. Um, he, so even though they'd complained and whinged, even though they'd rebelled and they'd set up false gods, even though they, they had broken their covenant with him, he still provided for them. He gave them water. He, he gave them food. He gave them sandals that never wore out. Um, he gave them this... Uh, wonderful pillar to lead them, and, they, and he also gave them a leader that, that, that would lead them in spite of the fact that they were faithless with him. And now God is saying, come back into fellowship with me. Your wandering is done. Let our relationship get back on track. And so they had to pause. They weren't able to go forward until they had actually backed up. They had to get circumcised first. And we've all been there, that relationship that is strained, those words that have been said, that hurt that has been felt, and those wounds maybe are still raw. And each party in this conflict are walking on eggshells. Uh, They've each created a scenario in their mind that fits fits their view of reality right now. And and they don't want to see each other. And so if I see you on the street, I'm going to walk on the other side. And if they do accidentally bump into each other, then they look at each other with suspicion in their eyes, waiting for the other to make the first move. But then someone actually makes the first move. Words of reconciliation are spoken, and tentative steps towards each other are taken. And that suspicion and the guardedness in their eyes moves aside, and it's... And it's um, replaced by warmth. 
Because that relationship is restored. Well, we've heard this phrase that it takes one to tango, it takes two to tango. And in most conflicts, both parties are at least partly to blame. But here, God is not. He, he, he has done nothing wrong. He has been faithful. He has, he, he has held on to the covenant with them. He has kept faith with them. He is not the guilty party. They are. And yet, God is the one who's saying to them, come home. I want to restore things with you. We are, and, and, and that's like us, right? We are the ones who've rebelled against him. We are the ones who went our own way. And uh, we are the ones who, like in the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 56, 53, verse 6, where he says this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. That's our reality. But then God's grace is this, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's all our fault, but he's restoring the relationship. We were the ones who went astray, and God is the one who restored the covenant, whether through circumcision, as in the case of the Israelites, or through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, as it is the case for us. Listen to how, how Peter explains it in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that We might die to sins and live for righteousness. And then there's a quotation, By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, just like these these people in Joshua, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So to use this really powerful language of circumcision, Jesus was actually cut off for us so that we could... Uh, we could enjoy the the warmth of of this wonderful relationship with God himself. Listen to how how God interprets this act of circumcision in Joshua 5 verse 9. He says this. He says, Yeah, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so what this circumcision meant was a cancelling of shame. It signaled a restoration of of honor. You see, I think that as the, uh, there's nothing in the Bible that says this, but I think that as the Israelites were wandering in the desert for 40 years, I think that maybe Egypt were watching them, not, not necessarily watching, but hearing reports of them wandering around, waiting until this, this, this motley crew of ex-slaves were done with, because they'd left them in the lurch. And maybe when they first heard of the children of Israel, um, you know, when they were right there at the border of the promised land and they turned back because of fear, I think that maybe, yeah, the Israelites rejoiced because they thought maybe, you know, that this huge hope which they'd had, this new start was now done. Maybe they were hoping that this, that, you know, that these folks would end up as nothing lost in the desert sands. And for 40 years, it looked as if that might happen. But now the Israelites have arrived. They've, they've had their own Red Sea crossing in the crossing of the Jordan. Now they've re- renewed their relationship with God through circumcision. And now God has rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Because from now on, they're no longer known as ex-slaves. Now they're known as the people of God. And that's true for us as well, right? is that if we're in Christ Jesus, 
We are, we are no longer known as what we used to be. We're no longer known as ex-addicts, as ex-workaholics, as victims of maybe former abuse, as ex-heartbroken, as ex-exhausted, as, as ex-failures, as, as, as parents or as grandparents. We are not ex-slaves. Instead, we're known as God's people. Because in Christ, we have a new reference point we have a new way to be human. And we read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here, and here it is again. God is faithful. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So at this moment of time, at the hill of foreskins, the, uh, uh, we see God's people who are reassured by God's faithfulness. But we also find out that they're going to be reminded of God's salvation. So please follow with me as we read uh, Joshua chapter 5 verse 10 through 12, our last scripture for today, which says this, on the evening of the 14th day of this month, while camped at Gilgal, uh, which, which means kind of roll, roll away, so while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate, they ate some of the, of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. So three amazing things happen in a short period of time, as we read in verse 10 through 12. First of all, they, they celebrate the Passover for the first time in many years. Secondly, they start eating the, the, the food of the land of Canaan. And thirdly, the, this manna, this bread of heaven, stops falling. Um, now, what we have to realize is that, that the last time the, the Israelites had celebrated the Passover was one year after they left Egypt at Mount Sinai, which means that the only people who'd experienced the observance of the Passover were Joshua and were Caleb. And the only people who had been circumcised until this mass surgical procedure we just learned about were Joshua and were Caleb. And, but now God wanted to get everyone in on the deal of circumcision and on, 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 the, uh, on observing the Passover they were backing up in order to move on. They were remembering the Passover. And as we read in Exodus chapter 12, the Passover was celebrated on the 14th day of the month when the lambs were slaughtered uh, right at the end of the day. And then the lambs were roasted and eaten on the same night. And in order to understand what the Passover means, it was, it was set up to remember that moment when the angel of death passed over the houses of the Israelites that had painted the blood of the sacrificial lamb on their doorposts and their lintels. And they were spared, but the rest of the people in Egypt weren't. They lost their firstborns. They, 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 they escaped this plague. And this was the plague that led to Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt, saying, okay, fine, leave. I've... I've I've had enough. You have to get out of here. And so I, I think it's wonderful that right at this moment, just as they're entering into the promised land, that they're reminded that God is their rescuer. 
that he is the one who saves them, that he provided a way for them to escape the judgment. He marked it in blood. And here, he is reminding them once again that he is their God, that he is their protector, that he is their rescuer. And he's doing it once again by marking it with blood. They were sinners, and someone had to pay the price for their sin. And this marks their transition from wanderers who ate manna to those who were eating from the land that the Lord has actually given them. It's really rich stuff here. But also notice this great reversal that is happening. Okay? They were slaves. Okay, think about this. They were slaves who then ate the Passover, who crossed water, who wandered in the desert. Now they've crossed water again. They're eating the Passover again, but they're no longer slaves. They're free. It looks something like this. It's a, it's, it's a mirror image. It's a great reversal. It, it's, it's like God is saying, you have all this shame and all this regret and all this history, and, you know, and I'm going to reverse it for you. I will do something new in your lives. And God offers us the exact same thing, this reversal, this new thing, but it's up to us whether we say, okay, God, that's what I want. And we see in 1 Corinthians 5, this link between the sacrifice of Jesus as the Lamb of God and how we should live in light of that. It says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, it says, Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? You have to get rid of the old yeast so that you may be new, a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, that's that reference again, has been sacrificed. Which means that as followers of Christ, we have a new life in Christ Jesus. Because he's our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. This has already happened. It's already been done. We cannot add to it. So our only response is to gratefully eat the meal that he has provided for us. But as Paul points out, we also have to live up to, our, to who we are. Or, like I said earlier, we have to back up in order to move on. We have to remember, first of all, who we are and whose we are. We need to understand that we cannot carry on living as we were, were before. Since God is faithful... Since God is Savior, since God is Rescuer, we have to respond. There is no way around it. And if we actually flip this verse around, you can see this logic here. Since Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, therefore get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. That makes it really clear. Since, since, since God has rolled away the, the reproach of our former life, Stop living as slaves. Live with your new identity as children who are in this relationship with the Lord himself. This is who you are. So start living like it. You are a new batch. And unfortunately, as, as, as we would find out later, these folks would continue to struggle with 
who they are. They would half-heartedly follow God, then they'd fall away, then they would be judged, and they would repent. And over and over again, this would happen. They would let the reproach of Egypt roll back on them. They would lose the meaning of circumcision, this, this losing the old life and embracing this relationship that God has for them. And they would lose the meaning of the Passover, that God has saved them, that he's rescued them. They would lose this over and over again. You see, without the larger spiritual reality that it represented, circumcision is nothing more than an, an elective nip and tuck surgery. And without the larger spiritual reality it represents, eating the Passover is nothing more than a tasty late-night snack. Which is why in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 19, we read this. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping God's commands And, you know, this is why we also read in in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, for in Christ, once again, he says the same thing, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. What an amazing verse. You see, when, when, when Jesus died on the cross, he became the one who was cut off for us. He became our circumcision. He He became the one who fulfilled our side of the covenant for us that we weren't able to fulfill, which means that Jesus makes us look good in front of his Father. Through faith in Jesus, we become those who keep the covenant, even though we can never actually keep the covenant ourselves. He would have been circumcised. But he was also the fulfillment of the symbol of circumcision. After Jesus, circumcision was no longer needed because he lived circumcision, but he also ended circumcision. And so for us, we don't look to the hill of foreskins to remind us that we are our gods. Instead, we look at the hill of Calvary and we're reminded that we are gods because Jesus has paid it all. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he became Yeah, the Passover lamb, the one who the Passover meal was pointing to since Moses' time. He became the one who said, this is my blood, this is my body, eat up. And every time we, we, we eat the Lord's Supper, we're not reminded of the Passover that happened in Egypt, but of the cosmic Passover that all who trust in Jesus for their right relationship with God are passed over for judgment in Jesus Christ We are secure and accepted. Jesus' blood never failed me yet, as as that hymn says. And so, right before they moved on, they had to back up. They had to be reassured of God's faithfulness through circumcision, and they had to be reminded of God's salvation through the Passover. Only then were they in a position to move forward in faith because they knew that they were following a faithful God who, would, who had saved them and who would save them in the future. When the new iPhone X came out, iPhone X, Apple fans no longer had to look longingly at the commercials on YouTube because they could hold the real thing in their hands. When the new Star Wars film came out, Star Wars fans no longer had to obsess over the trailers. They could go and watch the film. 
The actual thing always eclipses the previews. Once you have the real thing, you don't look at the previews anymore. And that's why we don't observe circumcision anymore. It's no longer necessary because Christ has fulfilled it. Circumcision was a preview for Jesus himself, but Jesus is now here. We no longer need physical circumcision. Um, circumcision looked forward at Christ. Instead, we have the, the symbol of baptism that looks back at the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We're reminded through baptism of that moment that Jesus broke the chains of slavery for us. And we don't eat the Passover anymore because the Passover was a trailer for Jesus. We now have the main thing. We now have the movie. We now have Christ. So we no longer need the Passover. Instead, we celebrate the Lord's Supper just like we did last, night, last week to remind us of the death of Christ. But we do have to remember, and here's, here's, here's the main thing, we do have to remember that Jesus was cut off for us. We do have to remember that Jesus was the Passover lamb who died in our place. We have to back up in order to move on. We have to back up so that the shadow of the cross is lingering over us, remembering what Jesus did for us. Only then can we move on in faith. And there are some of us here that just have to be reminded we are already Christ's. We, we just have to remember. But for some of us, we have to experience it for the first time. Let me close with words from Galatians chapter 6, which says this. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. Instead, replacing that, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule to the Israel of God. Circumcision no longer matters. What matters is, is actually crucifixion. Don't just cut off a little bit of yourself. Instead, cut off your whole self. This is what this passage is saying, that God is asking for whole life circumcision. And he could easily have said, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been circumcised for me and I've been circumcised to the world. What counts is the new creation. So, are you a new creation? Are you sure that you're a new creation? If so, you have to back up and remember what God did for you. And if not, if you aren't a new creation, if this isn't your experiential reality, then that new start is on offer right at this moment. And all you have to do is to call out and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need you. And and I want your life for my life. And he will save you. He will become your Passover lamb right at that moment in time.